I was reminded this morning about the story of a man, and I don't know if I've shared this already, that parenthetically is one of the great things about getting older, you don't need as much material, you just keep saying the same things over and over again. Forget about it. This man uh, had some medical condition that caused him to lose all of his hair. And um, being bald, he, there was an oddity that uh, he didn't want to give, give up his comb. He just couldn't part with it. Um, That's pretty funny. This morning we'll be looking at part two of our discussion on death and dying. As I mentioned last week, it's a bit of a morbid subject and something that we don't talk about. But as Christians, as believers in Christ, we need to have a, a biblical understanding of what's ahead of us, what others among us are going through, and to prepare for eternity. We'll be looking primarily this morning at death through the revelation and illumination of New Testament Scripture. We'll touch on a couple of Old Testament as well, but primarily we'll be in the New Testament. As we've noted in previous messages, the definition of a word is the expression of a thought. And the written word and the incarnate word, Jesus, are both the full expression of what God the Father thinks about us as His children. So we go to God's word in light of Christ, in the light of Christ, to understand what God thinks about us and what He thinks about life and about death. Um, since Jesus was God incarnate, it's imperative for us as believers to see both what He taught and what He experienced concerning death. In the scriptural account of the death of Jesus' beloved friend Lazarus, I think we see perhaps the best insight into Christ's view of death. So let's look together at Lazarus' death as recorded in John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Seems like an odd reaction to the news. I love him, but I'm going to delay going to see him. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The, di the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, 
but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, as he often had to do, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and the stone was, a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done.
In this account of Lazarus' death and resurrection, we see two primary reactions by Jesus. And these are reactions from his own feelings. First, we see anger. We don't think about Jesus being angry, except for maybe in the temple driving out the money um, lenders, money changers. But Jesus was angry here. The scripture says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit. He groaned in his spirit. He was moved with indignation. The Greek word here for deeply moved is it's a very strong word. It denotes a sternness, an indignation, a, to murmur against, even an agitation and outrage. It's anger. In classical Greek, it was a word used to describe a horse snorting. <laughs> Think about that a horse snorting. It's not happy. What a great visual image. And those present could probably see the rising outrage and agitation in Jesus' face. He was deeply moved, stirred, agitated, and angered in the face of death, the death of his beloved friend. But why was he angry? <laughs> he certainly was not angry at the grief of the family and friends. He himself was grieving. And he expressed it in a very powerful and real emotional way. The scripture says Jesus wept. Jesus was grieving. No, it wasn't their grief that angered him. Jesus was angry at the tyranny of Satan, who had brought death and sorrow to people through sin. In John 8:44, Jesus had said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. In John 10.10, he said that Satan is the thief who had come only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan had the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, and he kept people in slavery to the fear of death all their lives, Hebrews 2.15. Jesus was angry in death's presence because he hated it with a holy hatred. 1 John 3.8 says that the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. We should also note here that this internal anger, this agitation and indignation of Christ and in, in the Spirit in Christ had external manifestations. The Scripture says he was troubled. He was troubled. The word here for troubled literally means to be stirred or agitated. It's like the water at the pool of Bethsaida in John 5, like it was agitated. He trembled with deep emotion, like a horse snorting. Jesus is not happy at this moment. Knowing Jesus' reaction to death, it would be proper for us also to experience and express anger at the death of a loved one, as Jesus did. However, we also, like Christ, must direct that anger properly. This brings us to the second reaction to death by Jesus, and that was grief. Jesus expressed and experienced anger, but he also experienced and expressed grief. Two of the most powerful words in the Bible are those found in John eleven thirty five: 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. 
It's a natural reaction for a believer to grieve the death of a loved one. But the Bible tells us that grieving for the believer is different than that of grieving for the world. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The world grieves because they have no hope. Christians grieve in the midst of hope. Jesus died the death we deserved and conquered death through his own resurrection from the grave. He is our hope. Hebrews 2:14 through 15 says, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Revelations 1, 17 through 18 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Through Christ's resurrection, death has been changed from a period to a comma. <laughs> Through Christ's resurrection, death has been changed from a question mark to an exclamation point. Through Christ's resurrection, death has been changed from a conclusion to an introduction, a final destination to a rest stop, from a tomb to a tunnel, and an earthly end to an eternal beginning. Now let's look at three key words used in the New Testament to describe death. First, death is described as sleep. The word is used metaphorically, of course, as in one word for another. In Daniel 12:2, speaking of the Jews, the scripture says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting cont contempt. Excuse me. In Matthew 9.24, in the story of Jairus' daughter, Jesus said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. In John 11, 11-14, where we read, earlier, read earlier about Lazarus, Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In Matthew 27, 52 through 53, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. In the account of Stephen's stoning in Acts 7.60, we read, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Regarding King David in Acts 13.36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. To disobedient believers in 1 Corinthians 11:28 through 30, Paul said, But a man must examine himself, 
And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In regard to believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he said, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. To believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 and 18, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Believers in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The last one to the Jews in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 3-4. Know this, first of all, that in the last day mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So there are many scriptures that refer to death as sleep. Here are some key points to remember about the metaphorical use of death as sleep. First, it's only the body that uh, sleeps in the dust of the earth, not the spirit and not the soul. As we noted previously last week, the spirit and soul go to be with the Lord when separated from the body at physical death, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Second, there's no suggestion here of soul sleep or spiritual unconsciousness in these scriptures. A sleeping person does not cease to exist while sleeping, and also a dead person does not cease to exist after death. There's consciousness, even though it's subconsciousness. And men have long seen the similarity between sleep and death, from Homer, Ovid, uh, Euripides, and other ancients often referred to death as sleep. The English word cemetery literally means place of sleep. The word comaterion. There are several important similarities between sleep and death. Both sleep and death bring an end to all cares and anxieties. Both bring an end to labor. Both bring a relief from pain and suffering. And both are temporary. So how better could Jesus and the Bible show the absolute harmlessness of death for the believer than to liken it to sleep. Consider this, it was no harder for Jesus to raise Lazarus or to awaken Jairus' daughter from death than it is for you or I to awaken a slumbering loved one. <laughs> Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, 
and I give them eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in John 5, 27 through 28, he said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So the big question for us is, do we know his voice? Do we know his voice? So the first word in the New Testament for death, regarding death, is sleep. Another word to describe death is departure. Departure. The Apostle Paul used the word departure several times to refer to death. In Philippians 1, 21 through 23, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful, fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, he said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The root Greek word here is lusus, which was used exclusively or extensively as a legal term. It means to release from a binding obligation because the obligations of that contract were fulfilled. Lusus. Paul used this word lusus in 1 Corinthians 7.27 when he said, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released or loosed, lusus. It's the idea of being released from a legal obligation. And it has in front of it the preposition ana, A-N-A, which means up. So ana lusus is the release upward from a binding contract. Do you see the parallels on a spiritual level? The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But through Christ's sacrificial death for us, we've been loosed upward from that legal debt of sin. The word analusis also means loosening someone from chains of bondage. It's cutting cloth from a loom, releasing it. It's a nautical term, which means loosening from moorings, setting sail. A military term for breaking an encampment, like in 2 Corinthians 5.1, where Paul said, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The word analusis can also refer to the breaking down of a banquet. The English word analysis is derived from the word analusis. It means to break down into original parts. So Christ's death and resurrection has loosed us upward, free from our debt of sin. It's interesting to notice that in the New Testament, there are 26 different Greek words that can be translated depart, departing, or departure. But Paul chose one word, that only appears in 2 Timothy 4.6. The Greek scholars Liddell and Scott say this one word used by Paul is the only example in the Greek language of its being used to refer to death. Paul knew what it was like 
to cast off anchor, to set sail, to raise sails for another shore. He had done so with great anticipation many times in his life in ministry. For Paul then, death was simply anchors away. <laughs> We've seen the key words sleep and departure referring to death. There's a third word, and that word is exodus. From where we get the word exodus. It's spelled E-X-O-D-O-S instead of U-S. There are two times this word is used in the New Testament. The Greek word sounds exactly like our English word, exodus. It was used on the Mount of Transfiguration in reference to Christ's death in Luke 9, 28 through 31. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking to him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word was also used by Peter to refer to his own impending death, as recorded in 2 Peter 1, 12-15. Peter said, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, exodus, you will be able to call these things to mind. Why did Peter use that word, exodus? Obviously, it's also a reminder of the exodus of the children of Israel and the way that God delivered and provided for them. A way out of bondage. It was a great deliverance. The word exodus comes from two words. Ex meaning out, and hodos meaning away. So exodus is a way out. In the same way, death sets us free from the bondage of corruption. Exodus was not only deliverance from slavery, it was deliverance from their enemies, the Egyptian taskmasters. In the same way, through death, the believer is finally freed from his three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like the armies of Pharaoh, they are drowned in the sea of death. They cannot pursue you on the other side. Justification delivers us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification delivers us from the power of sin. And glorification delivers us from the presence of sin. As Moses led the children of Israel in the Exodus, Christ leads every believer through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23, 4. King David cried out in assurance, Thou art with me, death cannot separate me. Paul affirms this in Romans 8, 38 and 39 when he said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Dr. Donald G. Barnhouse told this story on the occasion of his first wife's death. After the funeral service, driving his motherless children home, and he was before the Lord trying to think of a, na- a way, something that he could say to comfort those children, he himself obviously grieving. Just then a huge moving van <laughs> passed them, and in the shadow of the truck swept across their car. As the truck pulled on in front of them, an inspiration came to Dr. Barnhouse. He said to the children, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? The children said, well, of course, Daddy, we would very much rather be run over by the shadow. That can't hurt us at all. He then said, do you know that 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus in order that only its shadow might run over us. With Jesus Christ's victorious presence in our lives, death can do no more to you or me, no more harm than being hit by a shadow. So let's consider these truths. Death cannot hurt the believer any more than a shadow can. It's like a bee without a stinger or a venomous snake with no fangs. As we've seen, the New Testament teaches that death is only a sleep from which to be awakened, a departure to our eternal home, an exodus from all the bondages of this life. And remember also, you possess death. It doesn't possess you. 1 Corinthians 3, 22-23 says, For all things belong to you, the world or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. In many ways, death for the believer is the wedding day. Christ is the divine bridegroom, and we are His bride. He has bought us, and we are betrothed to Him. At the point of death, the engagement is over. The marriage begins for we shall see Him face to face. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. What absolute liberty from the fear of death we have when these truths penetrate our lives. The first article of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 asked the question, What is your only comfort in life and death? Death is our common fate. Unless Jesus returns first, we all will die. Hope comes in trusting Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice for our sins, suffering an unfathomable death on the cross that we who believe in him might live. Through resurrection, he crushed the power of death. There's a modern hymn We've sung it here before. It speaks to this truth. It says, Hallelujah, Christ our hope in life and death. These are the words. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? the love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. 
Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore? The rock of Christ. Unto the grave what shall we sing? Christ He lives, Christ He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Let's pray. God, I thank You for the power of Your Word. I thank You for the thoughts that You reveal to us through Your Word and through the life of Christ incarnate. Your expression of love for us that while we were yet sinners that You gave Your life for us. We thank You, Lord, that You've sealed us with Your Spirit, a promise for what lies ahead. Because of Your Word and because of the deed that Christ has performed in our lives, we need not fear death. It's but a shadow that passes. And we awake to be in Your presence. We thank You, Lord, for these truths about death, not to be feared, but to be prepared for, that we live each day in a way that it brings honor and glory to You. May that be our purpose and our end in all that we do. Teach us, Lord, how to die daily to ourselves that we might live for You. We thank You for Your faithfulness and Your goodness and Your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.